So it got to the point when, where the general staff and the Minister of Defense were genuinely concerned that uh, you'd see a collapse in Israel's military capabilities. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, an entirely student-run podcast at the Johns Hopkins University. My name is Ben Al-Haddad, and I am joined by my co-host Leo Kamer. Israel, once touted as a thriving democracy in the Middle East, now finds itself in a very unstable political climate. After a fifth election in four years which restored the country's longest-running prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israelis are in the streets again protesting against a controversial bill introduced in the Israeli parliament. The bill, commonly known as the Reform, promises to weaken the powers of the Israeli Supreme Court, which critics have said possesses broad and unspecified powers. In this episode, we discuss Israel's political climate and the attempt at reforming its Supreme Court with Dr. Guy Laron. Guy Laron is a senior lecturer at the International Relations Department at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Previously, he was a visiting assistant professor at Northwestern University and a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford. His op-eds and stories have appeared in The Guardian, The Nation, History Today, Haaretz, Le Monde Diplomatique, and The American Prospect. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Guy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, to start off our conversation, could you provide us with a current snapshot of the last bill? Exactly what did it promise to change about the Israeli, the Israeli Supreme Court? Yeah. So uh, for me and a lot of Israelis, the world was remade on the 4th of January this year when the Minister of Justice, Yariv Levine, convened um, a press conference and announced that uh, the government and the coalition, of course, is planning to pass three bills. Um, one is known as the override clause, which uh, uh, would allow parliament to overrule the Supreme Court's uh, verdicts. Um, the other bill would allow the coalition to control and have a majority in the uh, committee that appoints judges. By the way, it appoints judges not just for the Supreme Court, but all levels of the justice system. And the third bill uh, was meant to weaken the position of general attorneys within the ministries. Right now, they are appointed by the general attorney, and and they have an independent or autonomous position within each ministry. Uh, And they can tell the minister, this is illegal, this is legal, this this is something you can do, this is something you can't do. Uh, so what Levine proposed was that those would be confidence positions. So the minister could appoint his uh, legal advisor and uh, the legal advisor would answer to the minister, not the other way, way around. So these were the three bills uh, that created, as you know, a lot of controversy. Uh, none of them uh, has been legislated uh, so far. So far, we have the three votes system that we copied from the British Parliament. So one of the bills was passed in uh, what is known as the uh, yeah the, the first and second round of votes, but it is not 
a law because the third round of vote did not take place so far. And why are the proponents of the bill uh, so interested in passing it? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, one thing that uh, um, should be cleared uh, from the outset is that um, the first two bills, the one that regards uh, control of the uh, committee appointing judges, and the second one about the override clause, they're, uh, they're duplicates, okay? They're, uh, if you have the one, you don't need the other. <laughs> you don't need to both control the appointment of judges and have the authority to overrule their verdicts. That's like uh, redundant. Uh, but what, uh, yeah, once those, you know, like, so were those bills to pass, uh, we won't have separations of powers anymore. Whatever coalition that will be in power would control uh, the executive, the legislative, uh, and the judicial uh, uh, authority, all of them. And that's not really a democracy anymore. And uh, proponents of, of the bill, these pro-reform advocates, have mm -hmm. pointed to the, the, quote, reasonableness standard, end quote, for yeah. striking down laws as, as a criticism of the Israeli Supreme Court. What do they mean when, when they refer to the reasonableness standard? So, and this is not unique um, to uh, the Israeli judicial system. So the court uh, uses this uh, metaphor of uh, what the reasonable person would think or how the reasonable person would act. And that's, that's a yardstick that as much as I know, you know, American judges uh, use as well. Um, but um, the idea is that if something isn't reasonable, uh, let's, yeah, uh, we can use uh, an example that um, the Ministry of Health decides to close down hospitals all of them say, <laughs> in a certain region. So uh, the Supreme Court might call this decision unreasonable, you know, uh, considering the, uh, uh, the mission of the Ministry of Health. Um, so for the proponents of that reform, this ma mandate is too wide. It gives too much power to, to the court. Uh, on the other hand, they, they're not that great in pointing out uh, cases uh, when uh, the court has made, um, you know, uh, um, an extreme use of that authority. Uh, and I should say that in the last uh, 20 years, uh, the Likud, the same party that is in power now, they made sure to appoint fairly conservative judges that um, uh, decreased dramatically uh, the extent in which uh, the Supreme Court um, overrules decisions by the government. I mean, the number has really decreased dramatically in the last decade or so. And so if if they have had, if the Likud has, has had the opportunity to uh, appoint judges, mm -hmm. um, you know, wh where where is the big issue? Where is their issue with the current process then of, of appointing judges? So, um, so now, now I, 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 you know, I, I, I present the, the argument of the opponents. Uh, 
which which makes sense. I mean, it's two things. One is, of course, uh, it's about raw power. Uh, once you control the court, you know, considering how the Israeli, uh, Israeli political system looks like, once you control the court, you can do anything. Say, uh, after passing that bill, uh, parliament would decide that the next election, instead of taking place within a four-year term, would take place within an eight-year term. Okay, they can do that. There would no longer be any authority above parliament that uh, could oppose uh, such a bill. Okay, uh, right now, the only authority that can do that would be the Supreme Court, if the government controls um, the identity and uh, of the judges, the makeup of the court, then there's no there's no supervision. There's no obstacle to uh, parliament to uh, legislate a bill or a law that says Netanyahu is ruler of Israel for life. I want to run through a couple of arguments against the law. Some critics, notably the Movement for Quality Government, which is the de facto leading NGO against the reform, has called the reform a personal law. Why have the bill's critics labeled it as such? Um, well, I, I think I would dispute that. Um, we, we, I think we will discuss this later when we, uh, when we talk about like which elements of Israeli society uh, support this reform. Um, when, when, when that NGO talks about those bills as, as personal laws, what they mean is that they were fashioned in a way that would allow Netanyahu to escape uh, a harsh verdict in uh, the trial, he, he, because Netanyahu stands on trial currently. Uh, four charges, uh, including uh, taking bribery. Um, so, so that's what they mean by saying that those are personal laws. And if the reform passes, yeah, it has also been referred to by some as the end of Israeli democracy. Right. What do critics fear will happen if the law passes? I know you mentioned earlier that they could pass a law proclaiming Bibi as the ruler of Israel for all time, but practically, what do they sense will be passed soon? So, yeah, that's that's the other point that I, I forget to mention, but, you know, good of you to, to uh, uh, point it out. So what Israelis, Israeli uh, protesters and critics of that reform fear is what happened in Hungary and Poland. Uh, I'd say more in Hungary than in Poland. So the claim is that the Likud, major officials within the party, um, have been in touch with the urban government in the past decade or so, studying what Urban did in Hungary and trying to imitate what he did there uh, in Israel. So uh, we know that uh, Urban and his party uh, refashioned the Hungarian political system in a way that makes uh, it almost impossible uh, to, to uh, you know, remove 
uh, urban from power in uh, during elections, a lot of uh, gerrymandering and, 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 and the like. Uh, also control of the media. So, so yeah, in terms of like, what's, what are the tangible fears of, of the critics of, the, of those reform? Is well, like that Israel would be another addition, another version of Hungary. Mm-hmm. And under these reforms, how easy would it be for the current coalition to pass such a law? Uh, huh. So that's the thing. Uh, basically, I think Tom Friedman said it nicely. <laughs> uh, Israel went through an intifada, like a, a popular uprising, but this time not, you know, of Palestinians living in the West Bank, but of Israelis. So um, uh, they they effectively blocked the passing of the, these laws. I mean, the government can pass them, but uh, currently, I think both Netanyahu and the people around him uh, assess the reper- repercussions as so severe that um, right now they're not willing to pay the price. They might do so in the future, maybe a few months from now, but but not like today, not like this week. And you were talking earlier about um, elements of Israeli society which supported and opposed the reform. Can you talk right. a little bit about that? What elements of Israeli society do comprise the supporters and opposition of the reform? Okay, so um, so of course there's Netanyahu and his party that became very much like his fiefdom. There's uh, very few pockets of opposition within the Likud. Uh, to Netanyahu, and Netanyahu is interested in weakening the uh, judicial system, um, again, in a way that would allow him to, I don't know, shut down a trial or influence the trial in a way that um, uh, he would get a very lenient uh, verdict. Uh, A third possibility, maybe the most realistic, is that he would enter a plea deal uh, with uh, the general uh, attorney. Uh, that again would be very lenient, um, and that like the, the judicial system, in a way, fearing the reform so much, would be be willing to let go of the po- possibility to you know punishing Netanyahu with jail time. So uh, that's element number one, Netanyahu and the ruling party, the Likud. Element number two are the ultra-Orthodox. They're genuinely worried the Supreme Court verdicts in the name of equality would force uh, their sons to be recruited to the army. Uh, There's... um, you know, this unique, special arrangement with the ultra-Orthodox uh, community in Israel, which is not like it's a, it's a big, it's, the, the, they're getting near to being a third of the population uh, in the coming decade or so. Uh, and there's this special arrangement with them that they are not recruited to the army, although the three-year service remains mandatory for everybody else. 
So the ultra-Orthodox are worried that one day the Supreme Court would put its foot down and say, yeah, we, we allow it no longer. So there, of the three bills I've mentioned, the ultra-Orthodox are most interested in the override clause. The rest that can let go. The, it's not that important to them. And, and they said so, you know, explicitly. It's not my interpretation. Um, and the third element, I think uh, the third element is the most adamant in its uh, support of the reform are with basically West Bank settlers and their supporters uh, within the Israeli uh, uh, people. Uh, and they're, they're worried that, that uh, the Supreme Court is, is an obstacle to the full annexation of the West Bank. This is what they would want to see happen. Uh, and I mean, it should be said, it's a, it's a very tangible concern for them because um, their settlements sit on uh, land that was illegally confiscated, uh, illegally, I mean, in terms of international law. Uh, so that land was confiscated. Even, you know, some of the settlements they live in for decades face uh, demolition decrees that uh, were not followed up on. Um, so they they think that uh, if they'll weaken uh, the Supreme Court, that danger of being evicted from their homes would would disappear. Of course, that's that's not how they put it. This is how most people see it. Um, for example, uh, the chairman of the Judicial Affairs Committee in the Knesset, a guy uh, who you know, became famous <laughs> overnight, his name is uh, Simcha Rotman. So that member of parliament lives in a settlement that faces a demolition decree. So he has a very personal interest in weakening the uh, judicial system in a way that um, would allow him to keep his home. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. And now that we were on the topic of settlers and the Palestinians in the West Bank, is there any fear of a policy that the current coalition might pass under these reforms against current Arab citizens of Israel? Absolutely. Um, they were planning um, this Sunday to um, approve in the government. Um, and, and when they approve a decision like that, it has, it's like a, it's a policy statement that gives guiding lines to all ministries. And that uh, decision basically said that Jews would get uh, uh, preferential treatment. It didn't say anything about the Arabs, but it did say about the Jews that Jews would get preferential uh, treatment uh, in any kind of policy uh, of any ministry, especially with regard to settling throughout the land of Israel. So, um, so th that's, 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 I think, a concrete example of the kind of policy that would discriminate against Arab citizens of Israel. Another worrying possibility is that um, um, 
Arab parties would be uh, would not be allowed to um, you know to participate in the elections. There's something known as uh, the election committee. It consists of members of, of parliament, and like each election, <laughs> the committee decides uh, uh, against letting Arab parties uh, participate uh, because allegedly they support terrorism. And each time, you know, like a clock, uh, the Supreme Court uh, the Supreme Court overrules the decision of the uh, election committee. But if the Supreme Court is being weakened, uh, then then uh, you, you might get a situation in which uh, our parties are not allowed to participate, and then the Arab citizens, as a protest, would boycott these elections. This is exactly the kind of situation that would allow Netanyahu and the Likud to rule indefinitely. And so I, th- I think we have a pretty good idea of the, the fears associated um, with, with the bill, with the reforms in question. So mm-hmm. moving more to, to what happened, to the reaction uh, to the proposed reforms, the country saw, as, as we already discussed, you know, massive protests that right. heavily influenced the government's decision to, to pause its attempts at, at reform. What exactly was the scale of these protests? So, yeah, the most dramatic night when, was when Netanyahu announced his intention to fire his defense minister. Uh, if you want in a follow-up, I, 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 I can tell you why people cared so much about that. But uh, going back to what you asked, uh, the, the assessment is that there were uh, 600,000 people out uh, in, in that, uh, during that night, uh, both in Tel Aviv um, and, and throughout the country. Uh, 600,000 people out in the streets would be equivalent to uh, something like uh, tens of millions of Americans protesting industry. It was like they're, they're, they're 16% of the population was out in the streets uh, protesting against the uh, dismissal of the Minister of Defense. And, and yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take that follow-up opportunity <laughs> to ask uh, why, why the, these protesters were so incensed with the firing specifically. Okay, and within the explanation, you get a background of, of how dramatic is... Uh, 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 that that struggle over the reform, because um, um, throughout his time in power, uh, Netanyahu pushed uh, towards uh, um, an Israeli army that very much relies on a few elite units. Uh, he, um, you can say that. Uh, land forces were like the stepchild of, of uh, the defense budget. And, and most of the money went to the Air Force, the Intelligence Corps, uh, cyber warfare units, um, the Navy. Okay? So uh, basically the Israeli elite serve in those units. And what happened after the, uh, um, you know, the reform was announced is that uh, pilots... Uh, and uh, officers in the Air Force, in the Navy, in the special operation units, in the cyber warfare units, they, uh, they announced that they will not serve. They will not serve 
in reserve, and those units basically cannot function without reserve officers and soldiers. But but the 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 worrisome trend was that it might happen that even you know regular soldiers would stop uh, you know obeying orders. So it got to the point when where the general staff and the minister of defense were genuinely concerned that uh, you'd see a collapse in Israel's military capabilities. So the chief of staff told that to the minister of defense, and then they both went to meet Netanyahu. And basically, instead of announcing that he's pausing the reform, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the degree of threat be, being so high, he responded by, by uh, dismissing his Minister of Defense. So um, the demonstration that night was spontaneous, but it, it, you know, it was born out of a deep sense of doom and despair. And just just to give you another flavor of what was happening, people went out to the streets at 10 p.m., okay? Uh, they were uh, already in their pajamas <laughs> or tucking their kids to sleep. Uh, and then, because many Israeli participate in WhatsApp groups that organized the protest, they, they saw, they saw uh, the battle cry on their smartphone screen to Kaplan. Kaplan is the junction that controls the ring road around Tel Aviv. And he who controls the ring road around Tel Aviv pretty much controls the traffic throughout Israel. It's that central. So they saw the battle cry or something you know, of that sort to Kaplan or to the street. So they took their flags, the Israeli flags, and they went down to the street um, and, and, and the roads and the motorcades. They blocked them. And there was a famous sign that was, you know, it meant, went viral in social media of a young girl holding a sign saying, damn it, I was already in bed. <laughs> so, so people were, were that desperate that, 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 you know, they gave up sleep and they were awake the whole night. Do you think that it was more you know, these, these protests or the, the fear that the Air Force Reservists, for example, and these other elite units would stop serving? Uh, which do you think was more influential in the decision to to pause the reform? At, at the point in which Netanyahu paused the reform, it was like overdetermined. You know what I mean? Uh, it was what you just mentioned and the fact that the Labor Federation joined in and announced it would shut down the economy. Um, there was a famous uh, a press conference with the heads of the Labor Federation in which they announced that they're stopping outgoing flights from Israel. Um, and the entire business community of Israel supported the strike, which is, you know, unprecedented. <laughs> Employers are always against strikes. So uh, I think like every quarter of... Uh, Israel society uh, was against against Netanyahu and against the reform. So, you know, when he was sitting in his office, he had to take into consideration the shutdown of the economy, the shutdown of traffic, um, you, you know, the danger of, of, a, of a collapse 
within the armed forces that, you know, however strong and stubborn uh, this man is, uh, he had to cave. And have we um, have we seen any um, any protests that are that are in favor of the forms? I know you said that uh, this is like the vast majority of Israeli society is um, opposed to the reforms. I'm wondering, did we see a reaction? Uh, there was. Um, I wouldn't say it's very successful. Um, it seems that the only element that went out in force. Uh, to support the reform are um, the parties and the movements associated with uh, West Bank settlers. Those are the ones that are that concerned that they went out to demonstrate. Even the ultra-Orthodox didn't really came out in force, as they know, but when, when it's really important to them, uh, uh, they can, you know, uh, force their way into the streets and, and, and block the traffic, certainly in Jerusalem, but they, they haven't done so. So uh, a week ago, uh, the, they tried to organize a big rally in Jerusalem to support the reform. Uh, it even, you know, was trademarked as the million rally or the rally of the million. But approximately, you can say there were about 100,000 uh, people that uh, joined in, and that's after there was a lot of money invested in the build-up, uh, in um, 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 you know buses, uh, bring them to Jerusalem. Um, I wouldn't call I wouldn't call it a success. Like every weekend, you get hundreds of thousands of people protesting against the reform. So when they did like a full effort, they really tried hard. They got one hundred thousand, so that gives you that gives you also a measure that even those sectors that support the reform are not that enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the the opposition to the reform was so total, I was wondering, um, you know, are there different levels of of opposition uh, going on within these protests? Um, mm. I mean, I'm sure you have. Uh, a wide variety of, of members of the of the political spectrum in Israel, right? Um, yeah, and so I'm I'm wondering, like, are there different levels of opposition to the government and the reforms, and so on and so forth? I'd say it's more by you know defined by geography than by sectors. So the protests in Tel Aviv, the protest rallies in Tel Aviv, are always the biggest. Um, they take place in that junction I, I mentioned in Kaplan. And this is where they also decide like what would be the line, <laughs> what would be the main message uh, uh, of that uh, rally, for, for instance, um, uh, during uh, one that took place uh, over Passover, there was a big banner uh, of Netanyahu uh, dressed like uh, Pharaoh. And uh, below that was the writing, uh, let my people go. By the way, the banners are always in English <laughs> because they know it's uh, the, the protesters, they know the, their connection to uh, uh, like-minded uh, publics abroad is one of their strengths. Uh, so I'd say Tel Aviv is very much leading uh, activity against the reform. 
But uh, there are other big pockets of support in places like Haifa uh, and uh, Beersheba. Uh, um, I'd say that um, like the elements that, that, that strongly oppose the reform are the ones that, you know, they, they earn higher wages. Uh, they would be within the, say, eight to 10 decimals of, of income. Um, free professions, uh, people that uh, their professions face the global economy in one way or another, uh, tourism, high tech, uh, the academia, the arts, um, lawyers, especially those that deal with international law, um, people of higher education, you know, college, college education and above. So those, I'd say, are um, the sectors that support, uh, or oh, sorry, that oppose the reform the strongest. Mm-hmm. And so now that you sort of spoke about the sector of society that is more vulnerable to the global economy, I was hoping to shift the conversation in the direction of how do these reforms affect the foreign policy of Israel. With that said, how have Israeli allies such as the United States reacted to the reforms? Has this affected Israel's relationship with them? Of course. Yeah. How, how did they react? In, 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 in a word, <laughs> uh, well, in two words, uh, not well. Um, yeah. I mean, Obviously, the Biden administration is against it, and uh, the president has said so uh, in his own voice as someone um, uh, who I oppose the reform, if it wasn't clear up to this point. Uh, I was very happy to hear uh, Biden says with his own voice um, that he won't invite Netanyahu to the White House in the near term. And it was very important that he emphasized that Netanyahu needs to reach a genuine compromise with an emphasis on genuine, because, you know, as always with Netanyahu, it seems like he was looking for tricks to pass the reform anyhow. So there's a, there's a real crisis in the um, Israeli-American relations. Uh, so that's one. Um, Netanyahu was always proud on his ability to cultivate uh, good relations with uh, rulers in the Gulf, but they have turned their backs on him. Uh, they, they haven't invited him to any meeting anywhere. Not, not, you know, it's not just that he's not uh, invited to, uh, um, to any place in the Gulf. They refuse to meet with him in, you know, anywhere else, not in Jordan, not in Europe. Um, so that, that, that's, a, yeah, that's a, another force that seems to um, make the uh, um, Abram Accords, you know, lose their potency as an anti-Iranian alliance. And in fact, as you know, uh, the rulers of the, of the Gulf have shifted and, and are trying to uh, reach a rapprochement with, with uh, Tehran. Uh, it, it, is all, it also caused a crisis in, in um, Israeli-European relations. Uh, Netanyahu did make three trips uh, to Rome, uh, actually four, 
so Rome, Paris, um, Berlin, and London. It seemed like he was uh, playing a lot on the fact that Europe is very much uh, in need of energy, and the um, the, the big gas field that um, is in Israel's um, economic waters, Leviton, uh, can be a solution for that problem. Uh, but um, in each time that European leaders met with Netanyahu, it seems there was no follow-up and they were not enthusiastic to do any business um, with him. I think the message was pretty clear that first, sort out your house then you come to us. And, and I think that remains very much the message of the international uh, community to Netanyahu. First, you solve that problem, then we'll see uh, how much you can survive and whether we can work with you. You were talking earlier about how Biden used the word genuine effort when right. talking about Netanyahu's attempt at a, about a compromise. Do you think that any other countries' view on the reforms have been influenced by how they personally view Netanyahu? Um, I think, I think uh, well, yeah, I'm of the opinion that uh, leaders at that level, they don't, politics is not, personal for them. It's about interests. Uh, but um, for so take, for example, the, the US. So if, if the reform that Netanyahu is pushing is so detrimental to the cohesion of uh, the Israeli armed forces, so how can you work with that guy on, say, the policy towards Iran? Um, if you're uh, Europe and uh, BB says, you know, we have a lot of gas to sell you, that's great. But uh, say we sign a contract with you. It's not, uh, f- for example, building a pipeline from uh, Leviton, that gas field to uh, Cyprus, where that, the gas would be li- liquefied and would, would then uh, uh, move through uh, other pipelines to, to Europe. Um, so European leaders are thinking like, you know, we sign a contract with you, but it's not clear whether the next government, uh, would want to honor that contract and how much what you say would, would, you know, make, uh, the next government commit to it. So it's not like Netanyahu personally, and more like the instability that he brings into the system that world leaders do not like. And so to to close this out, suppose that Netanyahu completely abandons his coalition's pursuit of a judicial reform, or you know at least tries to negotiate a very watered down version of it. What does this mean for the the coalition and for the Likud? Does the failure of the reform spell his political end? It might, yes. Um, right now, the whole endeavor seems to be at a dead end. Um, Netanyahu, you know, he's an inveterate campaigner, so he's shifting gears. Uh, he up to this point, um, he was uh, Mr. Bad Guy, Netanyahu, um, uh, the supporter of, of a confrontation. 
with the opposition and now it's the opposite it's not it's it's the opposite of no more mr uh, nice guy that now netanyahu's position is more of mr nice guy so he takes care of what he promised to do during his campaign cost of living expenses uh at least he makes motions as if he cares about that um he didn't signal where when uh, that reform uh would be passed uh so it remains paused um but uh for his coalition partners the knowledge that the reform might never be passed that may cause a rift and a recalculation and maybe at some point uh the collapse of the opposition sorry of the coalition yeah the collapse of the coalition Well, uh, Guy, thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. This is a very informative episode on Israeli politics regarding the judicial reforms. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.